0: I've been wondering how we can capture the wind to turn it into something tangible, beyond the fact that it's massively inspirational, The kids of all hues and ages are going to find a player with whom they can relate, or, like me, simply be in, order of the, uh, in awe of the astonishing achievement of a squad of people properly led with a proper strategy and a common goal and it's amazing what can be achieved on a global scale against the best in the world when you have those few things in place. We tend to allow great opportunities like we're experiencing right now to pass us by. And not long after the tinsel is blown off the streets, we return to our old self-destructive habits. And Bernstein is Executive Director at the Centre for Development and Enterprise, is on the line to us from Johannesburg this evening. Um, this isn't about the Rugby World Cup, and it's much more about actually how we harness our great Greatness and develop a country for the future. Maybe you penned this in anticipation of a medium-term budget policy statement that's going to read like a Stephen King novel. But certainly there are a few things that we can start to get right that can put us on the right track if we need to use the medium-term budget policy statement and a Rugby World Cup win. Well, if we can, that's great. But um, we've got big jobs to do here. Good evening. Good evening,
1: Bruce. Good to be with you and your listeners. Very big jobs that's ahead of us. Economic growth has essentially collapsed in South Africa because of a combination of bad policy, catastrophic governance, and lack of leadership. In effect, we're arguing the country has an anti-growth strategy. And in order to fix all of this, we need the correct diagnosis, which is what the president and the government have not given us. To errily say nine wasted years is not a diagnosis. What have we done wrong and what must we do better? And I think there are two absolutely stunning things about South Africa today. There are many. The one is the most senior chief executives have to stop what they're doing, which is running their company, and they have to help the government govern the country. Now, I'm pleased they're doing it, and I wish them luck, but that's a sad reflection of South Africa today. The second is, when you start to think, well, what can we do to actually get growth going again? We came to this very depressing conclusion, which is that the essential precondition of growth in South Africa today is that you can't start to rise until you've stopped falling. And we haven't we can't. We can't things. stop.
0: We can't start to rise until we have stopped falling. Um, I, I, that's a terrible indictment. And I think, unfortunately, you're absolutely right on it. I mean, in any metric, um, that we try to measure South Africa under, except maybe rugby world cup wins and astonishing cricket performance on Friday <laughs> night, things aren't going right. How do we stop? the the outflow how do we stop the negativity so that we can begin just to consolidate and rebuild what can we do to stop the rot well
1: we're saying we must stop developing laundry lists of how to fix everything all at once that doesn't work and we must also stop prioritizing and saying, oh, the state is weak. But then in your next breath, you say, the state must do this, that, and the next thing because the state is very, very limited. So this is an incredibly hard situation. We're saying South African government has to focus. We should have three priorities only. It's a lot more than we think we can deal with, but let's have three priorities. And the priorities are not rocket science. They are, we've got to improve security and the rule of law. The deepening penetration of organized crime into a rising number of economic sectors is a big break on growth. So firstly, the government needs to build its capacity to resist the mafias that are making economic growth increasingly impossible. And secondly, the government needs to build the state's capacity or society's capacity, but the state has to protect itself from corrupt members of the political, bureaucratic, and economic elite. So that's the first priority. The second is we all know we have to address the energy and logistics crisis, and we must stop ad-hocing it. We must stop delaying. What we need is to move away from monopoly provision in both energy and, importantly, in terms of rail and ports and so on, and get competitive markets working. So, we can go into a lot more detail on that. And then, the third priority, which is relevant to the medium term budget statement this week, is we have to stabilize public finances. Now, National Treasury articulates the need to reduce the deficit and stabilize the debt ratio, but far too little has been achieved. And now, They are requesting all institutions throughout the state to cut back because we're running out of money. And this is a terrible signal if you want to get growth going because investors will be really worried. This is a risky situation. Will my taxes go up? Will there be a fiscal crisis? What's going on here? So we've got to stabilize public finances, and I'm afraid that means we're going to have to cut expenditure.
0: I don't know if you remember Ramaphoria. It was a brief two-and-a-half, three-week period where we felt that things might just come right magically. There was a, like a magic wand, and we we're going to wave it, and it was all going to fix itself. In the first State of the Nation address that the president delivered, he was in terribly good form, and he was talking about vanity projects of smart cities and bullet trains. or was it bullet cities and smart trains. I can't remember. But um, it's the vanity projects that rich countries like to go embark on and mess up. We need the more boring things done, frankly. And we need to get those boring things done really quickly. I mean, there's nothing boring about safety and security and the rule of law, but it's, uh, it's not very exciting also to do energy and logistics. It's also not very exciting to do public finances. Those are things that should just happen in a professionally run state. And, and unfortunately, it's the boring stuff that we have to get right, and long before we can start dreaming about, you know anything to do with anything dreamy and vote-winning. I agree with you, Bruce, and
1: it's hard to see how the current leadership and the way in which the country is being led can actually deal with these three priorities that we think are the place to start, to lay the foundation. They're almost like the basics of the social contract that we have between the you know citizens and the state, and it's not working. So leadership is a very big issue, and we can't continue with – People in the cabinet who really can't do their jobs, we can't continue when the priority is the party and not the national interest for so yeah. many people right at the top of government. So this is a critical <laughs> issue. know. Yeah.
0: No, it's absolutely critical. It I, 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 I thought, sorry, and there's a slight delay on our lines. No, We're we'll crossing lines yeah. a little bit. No, no, it's me. It's not you. It's me. Uh, the governor, Reserve Bank governor, Lise Chahania, who voted in 2020 by his peers as the best of them. Um, he made a speech two years ago and it stuck with me. I've mentioned it from time to time. And he said, when everything's a priority, nothing is a priority.
2: Um, I've exactly. heard people
0: refer to it as, you know, we shouldn't try and boil the ocean. That's quite a popular term that people use. And it is the sense that we, we try to do so much with so little, rather than try to fix a few things with the little we have. And those, choosing those few things that actually become a catalyst for further improvements as 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 things, as you sort out safety and security, people become more confident. They may be willing to invest. They may feel a little bit more confident about the future. You fix electricity. People may go, oh, we can open a factory, whatever it might be. But just getting the basics right, those building blocks that are so essential. And Bruce, to
1: add to what you're saying, couldn't agree more. We need, you know, we've got all these reforms we're sort of dealing with, but we don't have endpoint for those reforms. What's the end point where we can actually say, done, now we move on? So we, we kind of, we sort of, we're always in, you know, crisis response. Oops, something happened as though it's unexpected, as though nobody had been predicting it. So we go round and round because we don't have a proper diagnosis, because we won't talk the truth about... Cabinet that, in many respects, is not competent to run a modern society. And we won't talk about fundamental policies. We're starting now about monopolies and competition. That's good. But we never seem to get to the next level. And that's what's absolutely essential. And that's why we're saying we have to focus. We have to focus on these three things. Anything else shouldn't be on the president's diary, should stay home more, and he should fix South Africa. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, not bad. I mean, he's got Tabo Mbekianitis, bec- bec- I think. I mean, he, and Tabo bec- was Jan Smutsanitis. When you can't fix things at home, you tend to focus well, elsewhere and you try and build a legacy for sm- yourself, it, it seems, anyway. Um, and, you know, you don't play bigger away games rather than focusing on the game at home. Home, and we all know how that ends eventually, don't we?
1: Exactly. It didn't end happily for Jansma. So, anyhow, that's and our it's, contribution. It, it, and it's in-
0: and it set the country on a very dangerous and, and dreadful trajectory for, for generations. And we must avoid that. Um, the president's got, what, an hour and, tw- uh, hour and 40 minutes to rewrite his speech. Um, I'm wondering uh, what you would like him including in that speech. We have no idea what it's about. We can speculate till the cows come home. But if you uh, would you like to send him your release about improving security and rule of law, addressing the crises in energy and logistics and stabilizing public finances and saying, this is what I'm going to focus on into the future?
1: I'd like him to say that, and my ultimate dream is if he were to say South Africa is in such deep, deep trouble that we need to pull on the very best people in our society to help get us out of it, and I'm going to change my cabinet and get people of real experience who now know how to run big systems and bed down
0: change. That's what I'm going
1: to do for South Africa, but he won't.
0: Uh, we. We can dream, and We can dream. We can let's, let's keep we that. We... <laughs> I'm tired of <laughs> hoping. Um, and thank you. Anne Bernstein is the Executive Director at the Center for Development and Enterprise on The Money Show this evening. Mark a commentary now. Uh, Meryl Pick, Portfolio Manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group is with us. Uh, Meryl Pick, I'm curious uh, to hear from you this evening as to whether or not you think Noel Quinn at HSBC is right because it seems very, very ambitious. Meryl? Oh, uh,
1: good
3: tonight. evening, Bruce. Uh,
4: you <laughs> good are, evening to you, are, you
3: I missed
0: the first half of that question, unfortunately, Bruce. Noel Quinn, the CEO of HSBC, he is saying that the, China, the Chinese property crisis is probably over. Would you agree?
3: Oh, Bruce, what an interesting question. Um, I think to understand that and answer that properly, one probably has to look at the underlying demand for property and what would drive that. Now, we know that um, China's population peaked, I think, sometime in last year. If you look forward at the expectations for population growth, um, they do not look too, um, too exciting. They're starting to resemble what we see in developed markets. And we know that demand for property is driven by number of families starts, um, you know, young couples buying new homes typically. Um, So I would think structurally that we could still see headwinds to the property crisis for some time to come. What we could see is perhaps some um, intervention in terms of the, the government's aggressive intention to burst that bubble, perhaps just trying to cushion that impact. But I think structurally underlying demand remains a problem.
0: Exactly, but if we can get the property sector in in China sorted out, at least that's one step closer to um, to away, further away from from a full blown crisis. Talk to me about the problems that MTN is having in Nigeria. Perpetual problems in their biggest market. This one is to do with some calculations they did on exchange rates between the weakening Nigeria Naira, a rampant dollar, and a couple of mistakes that they seem to have made.
3: Yes, absolutely. So, MTN Nigeria fundamentally should be such a strong business for um, the MTN group. They are the leading telco in that region, by far the market leader. Um, In constant currency, uh, they are still experiencing strong top-line growth, meaning there is demand for the product. But we know that the Naira has weakened against the dollar some 80% over the last 12 months. the big move started um, um, in June, and being many of the costs are dollar-based, when, when converting those costs, it's impossible to pass through such a big move to customers overnight. So that has caused massive margin um, pressure, not to mention converting any cash, um, Naira cash reserves. Um, at that rate now the black market rate for the naira is still somewhere north of what the spot rate is different estimates put that around a thousand which means that in our framework of theme and price this has been a negative theme perhaps it's reduced somewhat with the naira close to 800 but there is still room for this to weaken further and we have most likely not yet seen the bottom. It Obviously has an inflationary impact as well we've seen Nigeria print inflation numbers of about twenty six percent so if we think you know four and a half percent is bad, if we think eight percent in the uk is bad, try twenty six percent all of these things point towards pressure on the uh, central bank of Nigeria to raise rates now a month ago they've got a new governor, new DGs in place, no action as yet, but with inflation where it is um, with the spot rate quite a gap from the black market rate to the dollar, it would suggest that they should raise rates and that might resolve this this issue. But that would obviously be quite a painful um, decision to make more pain for for consumers in the short term and perhaps then more pressure on telco demand. I think the silver lining here could be the oil price. So Nigeria's oil production volumes have still not um, resumed where they were uh, pre-COVID government has announced some very aggressive plans and intentions to get oil production back up to at least 2 million um, barrels, and with the oil price where it is, this could be a boost to the fiscus and perhaps offset some of this pressure um, on the dollar if the oil price stays higher for longer. But uh, all in all, this is going to have about an 8 to 10% impact on MTN
0: group earnings, which is why I think we yeah. saw that uh, share price reaction today share price fell about six and a half percent, and I'm wondering here, Meryl, when we look at the the calmer waters that are presented by Vodacom versus the more volatile option presented by m t n and the valuations on both of these companies if I gave you fifty bucks and I said, you know i don't know m t n or, or Vodacom, where would you put it? mm that's an
3: interesting choice, definitely vodacom stable and steady however um we've got inflation and a weak consumer in South African market as well. They are also um, investing offshore and having to um, invest in other markets. A a reasonably stable dividend yield, I would put probably 30% of that money into Vodacom and 70% into MTN. I think a lot of the bad news is now priced into MTN. So it's all about what's in the price
0: at the end of the day. And if I said, uh, would you put a portion of that that, that 50 bucks, let's make it 100. Um, 50, so 70, 30 of MTN Vodacom. Uh, if I chuck pick and pay into the mix, would you put it all into pick and pay over the next two years or would you just ignore pick and pay altogether?
3: I am still staying on the sidelines of pick and pay um, at this point in time. Um, I look at the competition and I see a very strong footing. I'm, I'm, I think. Again, a lot is in that price, um, but I've observed turnaround after turnaround in this market and turnarounds are quite tough. Um, to execute. So ask me that question again in 12 months time.
0: <laughs> okay. I'll make a note. I'll make a note. That's what I will do. Meryl, thank you very much indeed. Meryl Pick is a retail specialist. Uh, That's uh, the primary job uh, within the old mutual investment group, which is also a portfolio manager within that particular investment business. Is going to be the Battersea Power Station. Now Battersea Power Station is on the banks of London's Thames River. And Natasha Sideris is poised to open the UK's first tashes It's happening at the Battersea Power Station and it comes a decade after she relocated from South Africa to Dubai to begin her Middle East expansion and uh, her South African business had reached optimal size but I see she's now talking about perhaps a few more Joburg and Cape Town outlets which is brilliant because it shows that she underestimated the potential of that particular market but her focus right now is on opening up at Battersea Power Station. There could be as many uh, tashes inside the M25 ring road that encircles London as there are in South Africa within five years. She's obsessive about detail and design, Mostly, she's obsessive about food, and I've got absolutely no doubt that she's going to have a huge impact on the London restaurant scene. The interiors uh, feature work from contemporary South African designers, Um, and she also says that the, the this first store of hers in the UK is going to be reminiscent of the very first Tasha's Athol Square store 18 years ago. That's how long Tasha's has been going. Here's an extract from the Genius podcast series, and it puts this move that she is plotting in context, because I popped in to see Natasha Sidras at her Tasha's by Avli store in Dubai's financial district in the Middle Eastern spring. It was already very, very warm outside, but going into this restaurant, Tasha's by Avli's in Dubai's financial sector. It's like stepping into a cavern from a 1001 Arabian Nights, just in the 21st century. There was a photo shoot happening in one corner of new menu items. The kitchen was bustling. but 11 o'clock in the morning, before the lunchtime and afternoon rush on a Friday, Natasha Sidaris is sitting complaining to her staff that the size of the little hand towels in the bathrooms are wrong, and somebody's brought a ruler over to show her that she's wrong, and there's a big fight happening about that. But here's an extract of the discussion that I had with her and the entire podcast about Available, of course, on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's everywhere. But he has an extract of that discussion where she talks about her Middle Eastern partners. She talks about how she was planning to make it to London. This a couple of months ago, included in Bruce Woodfield's Genius podcast series. Natasha Sidaris explaining the context of what is now in the next couple of weeks. Going to see her open her first restaurant in London.
5: I've been very blessed and very fortunate because my local partner has been fantastic. He does what he does really well, which is, you know, help with the financing, help with all the licensing, negotiate with all the landlords. He knows the lay of the land, yeah. And I do what I do best, which is all the creative, the staffing, the HR, et cetera, et cetera and the food and the design. And then never the two shall meet. So he does his thing and I do my thing. And it's a great partnership. And we... Been in partnership for eight years, or actually nine, because we signed our agreements before. And we're going on this expansion in the Middle East together. How did you find each other? So we had been approached by a few people. Mm. And we were about to sign a deal with a semi-corporate sort of company, and then I sort of got cold feet. And I was on my way to Dubai to kill the deal with this corporate company. And I get a, a message. Hi, my name is Mr. Mubarak Bin Fahad. People are talking about your brand in South Africa. I want to partner with you. So I said, well, listen, first of all, I can't talk to you when I arrive in Dubai because I need to be ethical and kill my deal first with these guys, and then I think you need to come to South Africa. So he he got on a plane. We took him on a tour of all the stores, and the rest is history. We negotiated back and forth, and now we are in partnership. So I wear two hats. I own the franchise together with my brother, Saba. So we franchisors, where we bought famous brands out, and that's the holding company. But we also own the restaurants here in the Middle East. We're in partnership with Mubarak in
0: the stores. That partnership decision mm. for anybody who has to globalize an idea will either make or break you, surely?
5: 150%. And if you look at half of the failures in the Middle East is because they've chosen wrong partners. They haven't been clear about roles and responsibilities. Maybe they don't have enough confidence because, you know, I came here as a woman to do this deal, but I always knew what I was good at. So very confident and pushed back. When the partner did try and get involved in stuff that he wasn't supposed to, it would be very strong. And absolutely, the partnership, if, if we hadn't chosen the right partner, we wouldn't be where we are today. And also, they've got to believe in you, huh? Is that partnership contracted
0: in blood? It is contracted in blood. And so he dare not, Mubarak, dare not <laughs> come in here and suggest to you that you put white linen and tablecloths on the market Listen, tops. you know, if
5: he's got a suggestion, of course, he's a partner, and he can come and say, which he always says, sweetheart, have you thought about X, Y, and Z? And if I like the idea... Great. Well, if I don't, then not happening. So, but certainly he is, Mubarak is a very well educated, very well learned, super well traveled, and I think understands the value of what we do. And that's why it's been such a successful
0: partnership. He's actually going to be a partner in London as well. Uh, there are horror stories of partnerships horror. going wrong. Um, and you must see them popping up and imploding all, all over the place. All the time.
5: I think what's, what's happened in Dubai is. Because the food industry has exploded globally and there's all of these different concepts, there is a want and a need for the concepts to come into the Middle East. People get excited. They don't understand that their partner's got no knowledge of either business or F&B. They start to put too many ideas, then the brand gets diluted and then it fails. Also, what's happened is a lot of very famous people have come here and have not spent enough time here. Big brand names, um, huge names, sweary names, people, swear, are, yeah.
0: people who swear a lot in the kitchen. Yeah. And, and they haven't been that successful. But did that mean also the, the very basis of success when initially you plan, you kind of flit in and flit out? Yeah, so
5: a, I was flitting way. in and flitting out it so in the early days. It was working, but the minute you hit store number two and three, you can't flit in and out. You, you've got to be, either have someone who's you know, as skilled as you are running the business, or you've got to be based here. You know, we've got plans now. I I realize that I can't hold on to all of these strings, as I have been. And we recently appointed a COO who's going to help me, you know, run the business. Because I also can't now, when we expand to other regions, I can't be everywhere. I'm not going to be able to be in Saudi and Kuwait and Bahrain. Not possible. But we would certainly dispatch the right people. You know, we've got a guy called Oliver. He's been with me since the South African days. He runs the concept stores. And if all goes well, then he'll be running all of the Flamingo Rooms because we're opening another three. And he'll run that brand. You're becoming corporate. You know what? I learned a lot from famous brands, and Kevin is still my advisor. Is he? He is, and a, and a very good friend and a mentor, and um, someone who I look up to a lot. Darren is also has been unbelievable, and you know made Darren Hill, who's the he did, and he champion. made the he made the exit um, out of famous brands possible, um, and supported me in the in the decision. But Kevin is, is is still advising us, and I think you need to have a certain level of corporate governance. To run a business like this. It's impossible to do it
0: without structure, unfortunately.
5: You have to. And, and you know what? I hate process and I hate structure. And that's one of the reasons we're bringing on a full-time COO. So that I can go off and do all the things that I love to do. And he'll just make sure the
0: business is, is running. But yes, we but you're a control freak. Terribly. And I'd say it with love and... I have th- no idea. <laughs> you cannot walk through a room... Without adjusting things.
5: Don't worry, I haven't even started adjusting yet. When we finish this interview, you'll see, I'll start my adjustments. (laughs) You
0: complained about the bathroom towels because they were 35 centimeters, not 25 centimeters. You summoned somebody who said, no, 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 they are 25. They brought them almost with a ruler to say, look, these are the ones we've put in the bathrooms. Why is that particular attention to
5: the most pedantic of detail so critical? You know, I was thinking about that this morning, actually, funnily enough. In the shower before I came here and I think a lot of people have these grand schemes I'm gonna exit one day and I'm gonna do a trade sale and I'm gonna list my company and while you're busy looking at that goal there you're forgetting about all the stuff that counts so yes set the goal great one day we'd like to list one day we'd like to do a trade sale one day we'd like to do whatever here it is And then you forget about it forget about it because you ain't gonna get there if there's no detail if the teaspoons aren't right and the towels aren't right, and yesterday I was at Flamingo Room and they were showing me five or six different types of napkins and you're touching them to make sure they're correct. You, you have to tweak all of these things because what are you doing every day? That's what you're doing. You're selling
0: product. As you grow, and because you are so pernickety mm-hmm. and focused, you, you're wincing, but it's a compliment. Mm-hmm. How do you corporatize and how do you then empower a chief operating officer? How do you empower people to be their own people within the environments that you have created, which you hold very dear to yourself? I'm
5: learning how to do it. It hasn't been easy. I certainly don't run this company alone. I have an FD, Anthony Sclanders, who also came from South Africa. I've got an MD here. We have Sabah, who's our MD in South Africa, and they run the day-to-day. But I am still involved in all of the detail. What I don't want to be involved in is the reason for bringing the COOs. I don't want to be involved in HR. I don't want to be involved in board packs. I don't want to be involved in... The boring stuff.
0: Budget setting. I'm just not interested. But you're going to have a, an FD and a COO who are going to start saying no to you at some point. No, you can't have teaspoons that have got... A, a gold a, a plating gold on plating and a beautiful detail on the handle. Too expensive. They're too expensive. Yeah. Actually, just have ordinary with stainless steel teaspoons that they do the same job. That's what accountants do.
5: Yes, I agree. And I have learned the value of slightly value value engineering things. And I think there's always clever ways of compensating for the beautiful stuff and then the stuff that's not so important. Value engineering that and cost cutting it. Where there will never be in my brands any value engineering or cost cutting is in the food. I don't care. We're going to buy the best and they can tell me whatever they like. There will never be central kitchens. Don't like them. I don't want to have pre-produced, mass-produced food. And we will always spend money on our interiors. And if the business model fails to work with those three things, then I must get out.
0: Natasha Sidaris, she truly is a remarkable individual. She opened her first Tasha's in Athol Square 18 years ago, 20 or so across South Africa. She has expanded it via Dubai into Abu Dhabi and into Saudi and in November will open her first tashes in London, in the Battersea at the Battersea Power Station. Huge ambitions for the city of London, and uh, you can find out more. You can listen to the entire podcast on the Genius Podcast Series in your favorite podcast app. Of course, if you missed that or any of the other awesome episodes, and truly some massively inspiring stories by remarkable South Africans doing remarkable things, um, please go and uh, visit the Genius Podcast Series. You'll be very, very, very glad you did.
2: Bruce Whitfield on the money show
0: 6 to 8 pm Has anyone noticed Tub uh, Titoumbuweni cooking recently posting those dreadful cooking videos and too much too many carbs late at night? He's just posted a new profile picture on Twitter. He's looking good. He's looking good, he's looking very good. I'm guessing he hasn't been cooking for a while. Chief at Stuff Studios, Toby Shapshak with us this evening. Toby, of course, is uh, gives us tech with Toby. Another day, another watch, the Huawei Watch GT4. Toby, um, surely by now, if you spend enough money on any one of the big brand watches, you get value for those watches. Aren't they much for muchness? Indeed,
6: Bruce.
4: The, and the fascinating thing is uh, Huawei, unlike other... Android and manufacturers have been very clever to make sure that you can use this device if you're an iPhone user. like Bruce. But I wasn't going to ask you to test this technology. Instead,
0: I've
6: got
4: a...
0: An athlete, yes.
4: (laughs) My long-suffering business partner, Sally Hudson, um, who is actually a real bona fide triathlete. She's one of those people who wakes up in the morning and goes for a run or a swim or a cycle. You know, I'm surrounded by these people, Bruce. I don't know what I did to do.
0: Um, Toby, line quality is not being good to us tonight. Let's just get through um, the Huawei Watch GT4. Give me its features and why you think it's fabulous and worthy of being featured in, uh, in Stuff magazine.
4: Well, firstly, we're not a magazine, remember, because we, we were a magazine only. Now we're a digital publication
2: yes, so Because you're, it's you're really good.
4: You know, we got, we got Sally to test it. She tried it out on all of that stuff, like it tracks running, swimming, blah, blah, blah. But it's very good at what it does, and very cleverly it works with an iPhone. So people are not going to give up their their primary device, their phone for another brand smartwatch. watch. Uh, some of the Android manufacturers don't click on that, but Huawei very cleverly have the watch GT4, and it's got a, a good set of health and fitness tracking features. It's got very impressive battery life, um, and it comes with you know, two sizes, bigger and smaller, um, distinctive styles. Sally was, Sally was pretty impressed with, with the the white leather strap and the gold finishing. Um, she said it was like stylish enough to wear. And you know, this kind of 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 fitness fanatic, Bruce. I, I don't know if you know any of these people. I, I as I've said, unfortunately unfortunately surrounded by uh, practicing health fanatics, as as opposed to you know us non-practicing health fanatics. And uh, pretty impressive for seven thousand rand. It it uh, it does everything it it says it shall, and it still looks good.
0: Um, good news on that particular front, then, Toby. So it does what it says on Hello. the box, which is brilliant. Um, is it an aesthetically pleasing? Device, because so you watch people wearing these things, and they're actually they're they're, they're, probably, they're not quite wearing posh frocks, all of them, but it it strikes me as a thing that you wear only when you are planning to go out and get you know, get mud in your shoes. I don't, I don't, I'm not so
4: sure. I mean, Sally was very happy to to, say, to wear it, you know, in, in smart company and with uh, non-month splattered clothes and shoes. Um, I think that's kind of the appeal of digital watches. You know, I've always been a fan of analog watches, but I've also moved over to digital watches. And now there's the ability to buy a a watch with the styling that matches your personal style. I mean, Huawei is very clever. They make a a male-focused version and a female-focused version, and the male-focused version is obviously a little bit more butcher and a little bit more, I don't know what to say, manly, darker, uh, darker colors. And and the the female-orientated watch uh, isn't. And I I have to say, both – um, Sally is testing it and Duncan Pike, his stuff's deputy editor, testing it. And they're both very happy with it. And they're both very happy with um, with the look and feel of it. So, you know, good for those practicing health fanatics, Bruce.
0: Thank you, Tech with Toby. Toby Shapshak this evening on The Money Show. And I'm delighted to see that Isaac Werdendahl, who's an investment strategist at Old Mutual, has uh, defined some lessons that our politicians can learn from the rugby players. And admittedly, Isaac, it's much easier to manage a team of 50 highly motivated rugby players, all of whom want to wear the Springbok rugby jersey in the year running up to and during a World Cup, than perhaps a bunch of self-serving fat cat politicians. But I'm curious as to what you think they could learn from the extraordinary performance that we saw on the weekend.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, I think the whole country is buzzing and we're all thinking, what does it mean for, for the country and what can we learn from uh from the World Cup success. I mean, I think the first thing is is you've got to plan. I mean, this, this World Cup wasn't just won over the space of four or five weeks. It was, you know, years and years of planning. And um, so the first thing is you need to have a, a long-term plan and um, a proper, well-thought-out plan, a strategy, a vision. Um, you know, we're good at drafting big documents, but... Uh, you know, it's, it's about getting everyone on the same page, and then obviously the next step is you actually need to then start implementing the plan, which is really where South Africa's fallen flat. I mean, it's the, you know, we've just sort of celebrated the 10-year anniversary of the National Development Plan. If you, if you still remember that, and I mean that plan was pretty much dead on arrival. So there's no point in uh, in having big strategies if we if we are not going to actually implement them.
0: No, exactly. I mean, the the, the, the imagine. Imagine just for a moment, had we achieved half of the things that Trevor Manuel and the Brains Trust put together in that national development plan, just half, how much further ahead we'd be as a country right now. I mean, there are very few countries, particularly struggling countries that don't succeed without a plan. Some of the best, most successful countries in the world have got 10, 50, 100 year plans that they tweak and adjust all the time. But it remains the sort of focus of everything they do.
2: Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that was in the NDP um, was around having a skilled professional civil service. And that's obviously the big takeaway if you're going to compare a country with a sports team is in the sports team, everybody is there, you know, it's the right person in the right position, which you don't see, um, obviously, at the level of uh, you know, the political class and, 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 and especially in the public service, where, which should really be independent and staffed by, by professionals.
0: No, exactly right. So, I mean, again, what, what, what do you think, oh, if we can learn from, from Russi and the squad uh, Russi and the bomb squad there's got to be a, I mean you know, there's we've got um, bands called Kaiser Chiefs, I think Russi and the bomb squad would be a great title for a band if you're looking for one um, but there's got to be a whole bunch of things I don't know how many you, you can define in terms of lessons we can take from these guys so that we can actually harness what is so good and so unifying and so powerful and so positive about something like a rugby world cup victory and the cricket is a little key fabulous as well at the moment. Um, how do we harness that for good? Yeah, I think, look, that's the difficult question. You know, how do you, how do you take this
2: forward? Um, I suppose it starts with each and every one of us kind of just doing our little bit. Um, and what I'm hoping is that, that this changes the mood a little bit. It's not going to change the economy. It's not going to change the daily reality, but if it changes the mood a little bit, I mean, at least one of the problems, one of the many problems we have, is just excessive pessimism, and we've almost lost belief in, in you know, our country and our, and our ability to just do things. And uh, you know, there's this failed state narrative that's doing the rounds. I'm hoping that this at least just kind of shifts the narrative a bit, and then we can start saying that, hey, if we can actually conquer the world um, in rugby, uh, drawing on the you know the broad population, this is not a lily-white team anymore. This is a population that comes, this is a team that comes from all corners of the country. And if we can do that on the sports field, then we can do it um, in business, we can do it in civil society and, 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 and in politics, and we can move forward.
0: But it—that's uh, wonderful, and you're absolutely right. But it comes down to leadership, and, leadership, and leaders define strategy, and leaders um, You know, people follow leaders because they like the strategy, they like the plan. And if we can get a plan that everybody can buy into, which I think is impossible on a uh, with 64 million people in a country. But if you get enough people buying into a vision and a strategy and a plan, you've got a far better chance than just sort of bumbling along in the dark. Yeah, and I
2: think the key thing about leaders is, um, and, and uh, you know, a lot is said about leadership and obviously the amazing leadership of Sia Kulisi. Um, but one of the other things is just being present, being visible, um, you know, and if you have a vision, keep selling the vision. I mean, the the, the one thing you learn in business, uh, Bruce, that I think you're very well aware of is that people have short intention spans. So if there's a vision, you need to keep reminding them of what the plan is, what the vision is. You know, you need to keep selling it. And and I think, you know, if if it's one thing that I fault Cyril Raposa for as president is that he doesn't kind of keep hammering home the message, you know, what is that one or two or three things that he wants to achieve and then just keep hammering home that message. This is what we are going to do. Um, And it can be a simple message and it can be two or three or four priorities and just keep, um, you know, reminding us, this is what we are trying to achieve and, uh, you know, and then keep telling us how how we are doing against these goals. Because obviously, one of the other big things is, is accountability. And and what you're seeing now is at the end of this tournament, and at the end of any kind of big sports tournament, is you're seeing coaches being fired and captains resigning and etc. etc. Um, you know, in sports, accountability is a big thing. If you don't perform, you're out. Um, everyone understands that. Um, we we don't have that in the kind of public life um, and and political nope. life in South Africa.
0: No, we most certainly don't. Because putting the right people in the right positions and giving them the right tools and the right strategy, you can achieve almost anything. And I think that's been proven time and time and time and time again.
2: Absolutely, it's about it's about giving people um, responsibility, but then uh, and giving empowering them to do the right thing. But uh, yeah, then they must be held accountable. <laughs>
0: Getting the right players on the team, um, getting the right players on the field, getting the right—you know—looking more broadly at the talent pool of rugby and going, you know what? There's a guy. He's—he's you know, he's from Kuruman, or he's from—I don't know uh, uh, Um he, he can kick a ball. Let's get him in and let's let assess. Broadening your talent pool rather than depending on your cesspit of deadwood is quite an important aspect to success, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, you know, obviously as a country, we, we
2: kind of, um, you know, we're failing on education, um, but we're also not holding on to skilled people. You know, a lot of skilled people leave the country, um, which is a tragedy because you've invested a lot of money into the education. And then, of course, um, you know, it's, it's about being able to attract skilled people from abroad where you don't have the skills available locally. And obviously, you know, one of the things that's changed in the rugby world in the last couple of years is we, we do actually allow our foreign base box to represent the national team. There was, a, there was a point in time when we didn't do that. You know, if you went overseas, you kind of said goodbye to the green and gold. We don't do that anymore. And I think that that is, you know, that's a, a very helpful thing for the team because it means you can now draw on, as you said, the best mm-hmm. players from, from that are based from all over the world.
0: Um, and we were t- we were talking in the in the first half of the show uh, about uh, to the Center for De- Development and Enterprise to to Anne Bernstein, and she was saying the problem is we're not focusing on what's truly important, and because we think everything's important and we're trying to solve all the problems immediately, we don't get anything right. Um, and I, I wonder if sort of you know the best way to eat the elephant is in one bite at a time. The best way to fix the country is one problem at a time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We we have a long list of, of not prioritizing. I remember many years ago, President Mbeki drew up a list of 17 so-called apex priorities. <laughs> so those were the most important of all the priorities. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that doesn't work. You need to choose, as I said earlier, three or four things. Um, make that your focus. Make that your vision. And clearly in South Africa today, that's electricity. That's the logistics crisis. Um, It's it's the kind of um, organized crime is becoming a big issue. I think those are the three that the CDE highlighted, but also education. Um, And and you know if you if you start making big changes in education today, you will only see the rewards many years down the line. Um, So it doesn't give you that immediate uh, feedback, but it but it still has to be done.
0: Completely, and you've got to start somewhere, I suppose. Uh, Again, doing what you're good at and excelling at what you're good at is always a good place to start, I suppose. And so often, so many of the false starts that we've seen in the economy and in our politics and in our society has been because we, I think we we get distracted by big and shiny things. Can we focus yeah, on know. what we're good at?
2: Absolutely. And I think, you know, again, the rugby analogy here, South Africa plays a specific brand of rugby. We've always played kind of a forwards heavy brand of rugby, that's what works for us. So let's play to our strengths in the economy as well. Um, you know, mining, I mean, for instance, you know, this economy is built on mining and there's still so much mining potential in this country, but we don't do any exploration work. Um, we don't incentivize exploration. We don't fund exploration. Um, you know, so that's that's kind of an easy uh, or, or a, you know, a, a easy win for us. Um, and again, it just comes down to doing the basic things right and not, not trying to be too fancy and, um you know going down the route of industrial policy you know as as a lot of other countries are doing <laughs>
0: You can't do it unless there is discipline. And, I mean, for all of the criticism of tabo Mbeki and his governance of the country and the things that he got wrong, the one thing that he most certainly did get right was an incredible sense of cohesion and discipline, an incredible focus on what needed to happen and who could speak when and how it was going to happen. You You didn't have, you know functionally, economically illiterate people dictating to the Reserve Bank or to the National Treasury. It just wouldn't have been condoned. You put adults in charge of those institutions and you allow them to go and run them as they should be run. Not without criticism of course, but not the sort of petty nonsense that we see being spouted by ignorant politicians when it comes to matters of economics and the running of the country. I'm wondering whether that sense of self-discipline is needed.
2: I think I think there's always room for discipline and um y- you know and again, it comes down to what is the what is the key thing that you're trying to achieve, and let's all you know at least in, within government and 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 the political class, let's kind of agree on on the vision that we're trying that we're trying to we' trying to achieve. It really doesn't help much if you know there are people within the cabinet, for instance, who go off in different directions on key policy matters. Um, so, for instance, operation Woland Lela is a great thing. It's fantastic because it tries to to to, to get cabinet ministers and, cab- and, and and line departments to do their jobs um and kind of implement key reforms. so it's very important that we have Hollandland Lela but but it's also a bit of a tragedy that we needed Wuland Lela because you would expect those departments to do the you know the, what, they, what they what what they are expected to do in the first instance.
0: Uh, at the risk of being a party pooper here, I mean, you, you, you put lipstick on a bulldog, band-aids on gaping wounds by operation this operation that. It sounds very sexy. It sounds active. It sounds as if you're taking in the face of adversity it doesn't talk strategy it doesn't talk about putting the right people in the right jobs it doesn't talk about the long term it talks about putting out fires and putting out fires consistently and eventually you run the risk that the fire starts burning out of control and uh, i suppose that's what we're trying to avoid with this conversation
2: yeah. Look, I mean, if you're in the position where you start in, needing to start fight fires, then I suppose having a strong firefighting team is is, is very helpful. Um, and you've got to work with what you have. I mean, there's no point in 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 saying, you know, kind of drawing up a wish list. That's not that's not realistic. So, so I do think Operation Woodland is a very important intervention. Um, but it's a pity that it had to get to this point where where you know you have to actually. have the special task team to to kind of intervene in government departments instead of them doing what should be the uh, the kind of the national plan, the national strategy to begin with.
0: Thanks to Isaac Wodendahl, investment strategist at Old Mutual Wealth this evening. Thank you, Isaac, very much indeed for joining us on the Money Show. Why do you support the brand?
2: Business books.
0: Always get it. Always, always mess that one up. I apologize. Uh, why do you support the brands that you support? Uh, I'm, you know, you like the products, you think that the, the, the management team is fine, you, you like the people when you meet with them, but mostly it's because you relate to their brands. And then it just happens that Grace Harding, the chief executive of Ocean Basket, can attest to the power of brands. She's building a global brand in Ocean Basket. She's got more than 200 stores. Uh, the first was founded on plastic tables and chairs in Ravonia by Fats Lazaridis, wonderful legend. Behind that. But today it's a multinational with half of its stores outside of South Africa, including, and this is my favorite fact of all, uh, about a dozen Mediterranean fish concept restaurants from South Africa dotted on islands around the Mediterranean Sea, basically taking colds to Newcastle or Mediterranean food. To the Mediterranean. Okay, Grace Harding, the chief executive of Ocean Basket, is our book reviewer tonight. And the book, Grace, that you've chosen is How Brands Grow by two people, Byron Sharp and Daniel May. Who are these guys and why did you pick up the book?
7: Well, um, I hadn't hi, Bruce, by the way. Byron Sharp, I actually hadn't heard of him, and I grew up in marketing. So when I started actually listening to the audiobook, because I listen to it, then I buy it, I started to think, oh, my word, so many of the beliefs that I've had and so many of the practices that I was taught have now been questioned and challenged. And what I love about the book is that there's tangible data and examples given for every comment. Um, and I have p- picked out the three main comments that stood out for me.
0: Um, Please do. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is you are are somebody who has been in this in marketing for a while. We won't put years on it. Um, And you are building a global (laughs) brand out of South Africa, neither of which is a a small achievement at all. Yes. Well, I
7: I picked up the book because uh, my exec colleague, Amanda Murray, and I were really grappling with how do you, make a brand locally relevant. And I think the days of what we've learned is when we pick up ocean basket and just stick it somewhere and we don't interpret or listen to sufficient of the localization, we aren't as successful as if we do. So I think what caught my eye about the book is it just screams logic because it talks about things like mental availability and, that's what's happening in the world. It's not about you. So if we pick up the ads of 10 or 15 years ago, it's all about um, me. And if you use me or smoke me, you're going to be also thin and exciting. And the world has changed. So I think the biggest shift is about how are you relevant to your consumer? How do you add value and solve problems? And then there's the layer of sincerity, and repetition. So one of the things that absolutely struck me is um in the one case study, they talk about Coca-Cola. And Byron says, so is a heavy user somebody who buys Coke more than three times a week? What do you think, Bruce?
0: I I would think that that's probably a fairly heavy user of Coca-Cola. I don't know people who buy Coke three times a week. That would be a different kind of heavy user. But certainly in the world of Coca-Cola, I'm guessing three Cokes a week is, it's probably not that much actually depending on the age and demographics of the people who are buying it. I I don't know the answer. There we go, short answer.
7: So you see, that's what I love about this book. It completely does your head in. So what they say is (laughs) if you buy Coke four times a year, but that is the cold drink you choose. You are as important and loyal as the Uh person who's buying it three times a week. And I can tell you, and I'm happy to say it because I always believe you need to be vulnerable. When we were on marketing in to a very specific target market, we saw our foot count decline. And when we started to go broader, we saw our foot count increase. So this book He bunks things like, you must be highly targeted. He completely rejects the principle of 80% of your energy in 20% of your customers. He says, no, you've got to keep on being relevant and being top of mind of everybody. And it made me think about car brands. You know, car brands, let's say the the entry level BMW, they show that car to everybody. But there are loads of yeah. people who won't be able to afford it, or who don't want it, but they keep on hammering you because in five years' time, you may want it. In five years' time, you may need a new fridge. Um, so it it was the most incredible thing. So that was important about infrequent purchases does not mean you are less loyal. The second thing is that people are people, and we all have the same needs. So whether I'm a mom who's a zillionaire or a mom who has a small job and I only earn 5,000 rand a month, I still need a great nappy. And I am going to one day buy the nappy that I see. And that's so interesting. And then the last thing is that thing of sales activations. So I always say sales activations are like drugs. I used to work for Edgar's many moons ago. And we used to do 25% off till Saturday, excluding about 10 brands. And when I used to sometimes work in the store, someone would come and pay for a bunch of merchandise and there'd be jeans there. And I'd say, oh, they're 25% off. And the customer would say, oh, that's nice. She would have bought them anyway. And this, this whole thing about sales activation, and look, I do it as well. I also feel happy when I see lots of people coming to the restaurant But what he says, and he's got data for everything. That's why everyone must buy this book. You must buy it, buy it, buy it. But what he says is that the sales would happen anyway. It's just us who want instant gratification. But if you are relevant, they will buy anyway. You know how often there's campaigns and people walk into the restaurant and I always say, don't tell them. Let's see what they're going to order. And they're still going to order what they love eating. But we feel happy when we are activating and activating. So Byron Sharp will do your head in. I still love Seth Godin. I still believe that there's value in, in many of the other approaches. Mm. But this has really been business savvy for me.
0: I love that, Grace. Thank you so much. Chief Executive at Ocean Basket, the book How Brands Grow by Byron Sharp and Daniel May, brought to you and by a marketer this evening of many years experience. Now a chief executive is still a marketer at heart and is fundamentally having her belief system challenged and is loving every moment of it. the book How Brands Grow by Byron Sharp and Daniel May. Zeus També uh, Tambe is the owner at Zeus Protection, and uh, Zeus, you're in the in, in in I don't know VIP protection space. Who defines who gets your protection? Is it anybody who can pay the bill? People who think they're terribly important, or people who actually are very important? Who's your customers, Zeus? Good evening. Okay.
6: Okay. Yeah. Uh, customers, uh, Bruce, is people like um, celebrities and people that's got trades and then uh, people that need like court escorts and then people that need uh, personal security that can take them wherever they want to go.
0: Um, uh, Give me a sense of it then in terms of uh, how, how does it work? I mean, I, I think to myself, hold on a second, I want to go to Saturn City and I want to go to the Diamond Walk to go buy myself some 50,000 Rand shoes or whatever. Do I phone you up and say, Zeus, can you send somebody with me to make sure that my shoes don't get stolen? Or is it a, a more formal response than that?
6: So, so what what you do, uh, Bruce, um, we've got a website where you can go through. Uh, it's a uh, Zeus Protection. So if we Google Zeus VIP protection, that's how we find us on internet. Unless that we go to Facebook, where we where you send us uh, an email, that the email is requesting our service. it comes through to our office, then we do respond on that and then ask you some questionnaire. Why do you need security? What's that for? So then we know, and then who are we um, dealing with? Who are we talking to? So then we've we've got now the Whole information about you as a person that requires the service from us,
0: okay. Um, when it comes to people's self sense of self importance, um, how uh, do I mean, when you look and people phone you up and they say, Yes, I need protection, I need to, yes. I'm a very important person, I, I need you to know yes. this, and, and people are like out to get me. Um, do you care? In terms of uh, if they just believe that they're important to be enough to be in danger, do you counsel them at all? Or do you take every call and say, right, you need eight people to come and protect you. I will send eight people to come and protect you. How does that work?
6: So how it works is um, because sometimes people they need just security for show off where they need to feel important. And then to, when they go for the meetings and the high-end meetings, we do accompany them for their, uh, for their meetings. And then on the other hand, it depends on the um celebrities where they need to go somewhere. So we also do the same thing where we kind of we kind of we kind of like profile them to make sure to feel more important. On the other hand, we do also ask them what do you what do they need um in terms of our services? What are they requiring what are they requiring from us as a company? Do they need um a full suit. Do they need uh, a special occasion? Do they need like an outdoor sort of um, a dress code? But we also look at how, what what type of meeting are they going to? What type of places are they going to? Because we understand the industry, so we can't just on the um, picnic time and wear a suit. You know what I'm saying? And, how then, do you if get into it, and then if it's and then if it's a court, sorry, sorry, Bruce, if it's a court uh, escort, if someone's going to the court, definitely we will have like a suit. And go to the um, to the court as well,
0: yeah. Yeah. So if somebody, I mean, so, so a famous person has to appear in court on a drink driving charge <laughs> or whatever the case might be, yeah. Um, and they yeah. don't want the cameras to get too close, and they don't want people to be throwing eggs at them or worse. Um, yes. They then get some get some heavies around them. How do you yeah. how did you get into it, Zeus? What did you have to do in order to get the skills required to begin the process of setting up a business in this?
6: Okay, so on this um, type of industry, then I I started as like a security bouncer, and then where I used to help people on the clubs to make sure that um, because there's a lot of uh, spikes, in, uh, spiking of people' drinks. I mean, people walk in the club, all of a sudden they drunk, and all of a sudden they have to be carried out. The women, especially women. So I, I mean, I serve a lot of women on this uh, industry, then, especially when it comes to clubbing time. So then. That uh, love of protecting people, it develops within me. And then at the same time, then I start going through um, the training and then to have the skills and the training. And then I realize, you know what, that I can can make it a business where I can be able to employ people and then work for me. And at the same time, we're helping the community as a whole to, to, to keep them safe.
0: So people like Oprah comes to South Africa. I'm yes. told that she's a client. Are oh, you allowed to talk about your clients? Um, and so uh, somebody like like Oprah, um, no, an Oprah, for example, it doesn't matter, an Oprah. Um, may very well um, come to you and say, you know, I'm coming to South Africa. I'm terribly famous. Um, I actually would just like to be able to keep crowds at bay. I want to encourage some people closer. I want to encourage some people to stay away. Um, and, And then you've got to manage her expectations because you don't want to be going around smacking people in the head if they come too close to Oprah. But you do want to create the sense that this is not somebody that you could just come in and grab selfies with because, you know, she has a physical person that needs protection as well.
6: So, when it comes to that um, because we understand the uh, what they call the client uh, needs or perspective uh, perspective from us, then we make sure that wherever we do, because we know the area, we know the people, some people they are there for that they like to uh, to throw stuff they want to throw themselves, they want attention, so we make sure that wherever we go. We secure the client, and then so that in he, she must be she or he mustn't be mustn't be uninterrupted wherever he wants whatever he or she might want to do.
0: We're talking this evening to Zeus Tambe. In a moment I'm going to ask Zeus a really important question, and that is Along the lines of, do you ever get really irritated by people who want to draw attention to themselves so that they don't feel – I was going through Heathrow Airport a couple of months ago, um, and I saw two young guys carrying Louis Vuitton luggage, and I recognized them. Neither of them and airport security. So Heathrow airport security was shepherding them through, you know, those transit trains that they've got and all that sort of stuff at Terminal five at Heathrow. And I think if these two guys with, with Louis Vuitton luggage had just jumped onto the train with us, I would have gone oh, God, showing off looking for attention with Louis Vuitton luggage. But now they were looking for attention, not only with Louis Vuitton luggage, but with. You know, quite burly security people. It turns out one of them was the footballer, Marcus Rashford. I didn't know that. He was very calm and very sweet and just sitting with his cap over his eyes, not wanting attention. But he throws swords as necessary to get the guys around him just to make sure that he could be transitioned through the airport nice and quickly. That, I think, is perfectly legitimate. But sometimes... And there's one case of a particular family that lives in St- uh, in, in Sandhurst um, that is in the news a lot at the moment. And you just feel that these people are just drawing attention to themselves because they want to feel important. <laughs> we'll talk about that sort of behavior in a moment. Plus, a story from a guy I met on a plane who's in this business and what he told me, which was quite startling. More with Zeus També in a moment. How many brats, Zeus, do you need to look after? Bratty little people who want to feel important so they get you to amplify their presence in a space, whether it's going to a party, going to a court, going somewhere, that they just actually just want to be seen uh to have heavies around them.
6: Security, yeah. Uh it, it uh, Bruce, it's Bruce, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um especially because of I mean, um I will put this way, it's young money. Because they also want to be shown, and the other old money, some old money as well. They also want to see to be shown to, to be seen on the on the internet or on the space of people. So it, it happens a lot. It Happens a lot. It's a lot of them.
0: If I wanted to become a security heavy, if I wanted a job with you, Zeus, how what what sort of qualifications would I require to to cut the grade for you to make the grade for you?
6: Okay, so what, what we need as a company, we, um, we, ca- we employ um, ex-military, ex-police, but they have to go through because of the, on the uh, VIP or uh, close protection industry it's different training. So it's not uh, when you're in the police, then you know about protect, uh, uh, protection. No, it's different because then if you have to work with someone in the uh, uh, CEO uh, industry or CEO office, if you just come from a military straight, you won't understand what the needs how to look after that person. So you need to go through the training first. Um, it's called it's another body in South African. It's a the South African, uh, the, the, the South African um, security and something like that. Yeah, Sita, yes, SACITA. And then also you have to go through Sira. You have to go through Sira. Sira is when also the. Private security authorities, one of the other industries, other bodies that you have to um, go through, then they vet you, they make sure that you are, uh, what they call, you are qualified, you are part of the, um, you can provide security. You don't have criminal records, you don't have stuff like that behind, behind your fingers.
0: But you also need a a huge amount of emotional intelligence, I would think. If you're going to be uh, somebody who's going to be Oprah or Zelda's uh, close protection officer, you've got to be able to get on with the people that you're protecting. You've got to make them comfortable in your presence. They've got to be able to relax in your presence. They can't be watching you, watching them, watching everybody else. No, no. uh, no. And the, the, the importance of being highly visible but invisible at the same time i don't know how you guys yeah. do that but the good guys <laughs> you don't notice them until actually something goes wrong uh bruce bruce what we do we
6: make sure that the clients feels safe like i said we understand the client we study the client first because knowing you what you want to what why do you need security why do you need bodyguards? so I, I understand you i make sure that you know what let me tailor this service for Bruce because Bruce is ex person. He loves um to be shown. He loves to have a security close to him. Okay, Bruce now doesn't like to have a security all over around. Just what what he does? You want discrete um services. So we just tailor according to according your needs what do you want. We don't just like we don't just like randomly like uh, what it call storming in around you feel uncomfortable we make sure that you feel comfortable we make sure that um, we value you and then we make sure that we give it, we give you a good service
0: i sat on the plane once next to a young guy who was changing careers he'd worked in your profession he had been close protection and he gave me a couple of names of people he'd helped protect and I uh, said, that must yeah. be exciting. He goes, not really. Nothing ever happened. Yeah. And he said, you, yeah. you spent your life sort of driving around and sitting in cars, mostly just waiting for them to finish what they were doing. You would then get a call saying they're coming out the door, so you get out, you'd check the scene around, and you'd escort them yeah. to the car, and then you'd drive them off to their next appointment. And he got so bored yeah. of it, he was actually going off to go to America to go and work on cruise ships and security on cruise ships, hoping that at least yeah. that might bring some excitement. It, it feels like it's nineteen. 99- 99.999% absolute boredom and maybe very little excitement. Is that what it's It's, it's, really like? It's it's, it's, it's not bored. I mean, this industry, uh,
6: Bruce, you have to have the heart of it. You don't go because of money or whatsoever. Because if you want to go for money or the fame, then you won't won't like it because sometimes that you find that the clients, they are in a good mood, sometimes in a bad mood. So... Today, they were fine. Today, they were happy. Tomorrow, now, there's something. So if your heart or your mind, it's easy to, uh, what do you call, to lose cool on that. Definitely, the industry won't be the place for you. And then also, you have to have an endurance to be able to work in a space where it can change at any time. So you must adapt because mm-hmm. if you have to look at one thing where you're going to be uh, what do you call pacing out, pacing out, pacing out the whole time. Definitely, then the, the moment that you stop pacing, then you're gonna get bored. You know what I'm saying?
2: Does
0: bored. it pay better? Th- does it pay better than an equivalent job in the police or in the army? I mean, is, is there a sense of uh, does? Is it sort of twice the pay? Is it similar sort no, of pay? What what, this, what can one expect to earn?
6: This, this industry pays it, pays. it pays. It pays. It pays. It pays a lot. It pays a lot. Uh, it pays a
0: lot. A a need to know. <laughs> thank you, Zeus, very much indeed for giving us an insight this evening. Uh, Zeus is the owner and manager at Zeus Protection. You get just hear. We can hear the bling dripping him off him. You can hear the Louis Vuitton. You can hear all of them, I'm joking. Uh, but thank you, Zeus. Uh, wonderful insight this evening into an industry that you know I know about because I sat next to a guy on a plane. But Zeus confirming some of those facts.